I was very impressed by a New York Times piece in July of 2015. This was an online piece, and it showed a puzzle. The puzzle involved three numbers that were increasing in size, and then it gave you an option of determining the rule by which they were increasing. You could dial in three numbers of your own and then press a button to test and see if you were right. Once you were satisfied, you could click a final button, and it would give you the answer. And it said you could test this as many times as you wanted. So I tested this puzzle with my idea or my suspicion of what I thought the rule was, and then I checked the answer. The answer was really quite elegant. It said that the only requirement was that the three numbers increased in size. They could be any numbers. The point of this piece was not about a mathematical puzzle or sequencing. It was really about a psychological concept called confirmation bias. Confirmation bias is when a person has a belief or a preconceived notion, and they preferentially scan for information that supports their belief. People like to be right. The interesting part of this exercise was that you could check as many versions as you wanted. But most people wouldn't do that. They would just check it a couple times and then click to determine the answer. We care a lot about confirmation bias in the world of addiction treatment because it seems to play a heavy role in how people approach their health behaviors. My name is Pat Failing. I'm an addiction psychiatrist. I treat patients with drug addiction and alcoholism, finding tactical solutions for lethal problems. You're listening to Recovery Arc. In looking at confirmation bias, I wanted to better understand this. Why did people struggle with this problem? My original hypothesis was that it had to do with brain storage. We simply could not hold everything. It was too overwhelming to hold all the data of our lives in our brain. So I looked into some of the scientific research on this. How big and how much storage capacity did the brain actually have? I found that researchers estimated the brain storage to be somewhere between 10 and 100 terabytes. So to understand this, a terabyte is a thousand gigabytes. So the brain has massive storage capacity. This kind of disproves my hypothesis with this. It had to be more than just holding the information. That's when I found a quote by a researcher from Northwestern University, Paul Reber. He used an analogy that the brain was more like an iPod, in that it could hold all of the songs that you wanted, but it would struggle with uploading the songs and downloading the songs and finding the songs. So that introduces a new concept of neuroscience, what we would call working memory or retrieval of the information. It's kind of like saying you have all of your memories in your past, in your brain, but it can be difficult and sometimes impossible to actually fish out those memories and make use of them. So in the case of confirmation bias, people hold their most commonly used views on the world 
in the forefront. It makes it easier for them. This is part of their working memory. It gives them a greater freedom in that they don't have to be going to their hard drive each and every day. They can function more real-time. Now let's introduce something else to the equation, the concept of emotions, specifically pain. The brain is very sensitized to avoid pain. One of the neurotransmitters that seems to be heavily connected to how we would feel both physical pain and emotional pain in our life is norepinephrine. When norepinephrine is elevated in terms of neuroactivity, oftentimes it will imprint more intense and structured memories for people. This is a way of explaining why you may remember some of your most painful days very vividly, whereas a lot of your boring days oftentimes get lost or not stored. The brain and the self has a vested interest in avoiding pain, so we oftentimes are very sensitized to it. When people experience even the very small pain of being wrong in a circumstance, that is instantly uncomfortable for them. From a psychological perspective, we would say that they would defend against that pain. And a way of defending against it would be through some form of rationalization. Rationalization seems to be a player in confirmation bias. The person is seeing some data that might argue against their belief, but they find a way to dismiss that data and overemphasize the data that supports their belief. So now we've established that working memory is an important component in our daily functioning in that we can only hold so much at any given time involving our attention and access and use of the information. Then we combine that with concepts of pain avoidance and how people don't like pain and they're sensitized to it in that we use psychological defenses to avoid pain in an emotional context whenever possible. Finally, we can introduce a philosophical concept to this argument. This is the concept of a search for meaning. People love to have meaning in their life. They love to have explanations. If you don't have an explanation, you're left with the unknown. And I think the unknown is very uncomfortable for people. So they would rather know the answer. For instance, a patient who may have a belief that people are going to abandon them. They may have a difficult time sitting with those emotions. And it may become somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy for them. Instead of the most appropriate responses, which you don't know if people will abandon you. We hope that they don't, and we hope that they don't based on a relational connection and love. But abandonment does happen. So to be able to prepare for it, you search for meaning and you draw conclusions. I think this speaks to the New York Times puzzle. People love puzzles. They want to solve them instead of walking away from the puzzle and saying, I don't know. I'm not sure what the answer might be. People are up to the task. They like to have meaning. They like to have conclusions. I think having those conclusions helps us simplify our life. 
And that may connect also to some of the working memory and some of the organizational capacity of the brain as well. If we have conclusions and answers for things, we can probably be a little bit more efficient. The problem comes in if our answers or conclusions are distorted or inaccurate. Then you're going to be making future decisions based on flawed conclusions from past decisions. And that seems like a terrible, vicious cycle for people. So let's use some real-world examples and apply this to addiction treatment. Example number one. You've struggled with lifelong alcoholism, but last weekend you drank and it went okay. This is a perfect example of confirmation bias. I've worked with many patients who struggle with alcoholism and drug addiction who believe or hope to believe that they're in control of their substance use. They preferentially pay attention to data that supports that belief, specifically a weekend in which drinking went okay. Never mind that this person has had two prior DUIs and is looking at a divorce. They're scanning for information to support what they so want to believe, which is that they're a normal drinker and can drink the same way as everyone else. In these circumstances, sometimes I will pull out the data as delineated by George Valent in his book, The Natural History of Alcoholism. The concept of can you drink socially after struggling with alcoholism is always on the table for patients. What Valent showed in his study was that alcoholic drinkers who sober up and return to drinking will most likely return once again to either alcoholic level drinking or once again sober up. So there seems to be a natural trajectory for these patients. People who have the alcoholic disease have it and they start to accept it in some ways. Example number two, abandonment fears. I've had many patients who struggle with past relationships in which abandonment was a large player. I experience interesting things with these patients in that they oftentimes will hold me to very high standards in terms of will I be there for them or not. If you spend enough time with somebody, eventually you drop the ball in some sort of a mild way. I've been fired by many patients who noticed that moment in which I slighted them in some way or dropped the ball. That was confirmation bias for that patient. They believed that I was not really there for them and didn't really care about them. They're preferentially scanning our therapeutic relationship for any amount of evidence that supports that belief. Number three, we can use the concept of acceptance of even having the disease of addiction as a zone for confirmation bias. I have many patients who will make repeated comparisons of what their drinking looks like compared to somebody else's drinking, saying their drinking is not as bad or they don't have as severe of a problem as somebody else. Never mind 
all of the data that supports that they're out of control and really suffering from their drinking. They don't seem to tend to that information. They tend to small data points which are different than somebody who is, say, discussed in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is another perfect example of confirmation bias at play. When I'm working with somebody in a therapeutic context, one of our main goals, above all, is this concept of acceptance in life. That acceptance could be having alcoholism. That acceptance could be understanding that you can't control your drinking. That acceptance could be appreciating that somebody could drop the ball and at the same time care for you and be on your team. It can be very difficult for people to walk through this road of acceptance, but people who do walk that road feel more at peace. Confirmation bias is the real deal. We target this very often in a psychotherapy modality. We look at the components of it involving pain, the defense mechanisms at play, the search for meaning and why people want to have conclusions in their life to make sense of their world and to make life just more efficient and easy for them. Then we really target concepts of acceptance. What kinds of things are they accepting and what kinds of things are they not accepting? And could confirmation bias function as a barrier in many ways for these people reaching true acceptance and peace with whatever health problems they have, including addiction, depression, other mental illness issues? Also acceptance of the way their relationships play out. For people to be able to accept that they can be cared about and essentially loved by people in their life is very foreign to some people, and it disrupts their reality. Confirmation bias is present in all walks of life, ranging from politics and the news, to sports analysis, to your personal preferences involving food, music, movies, art. We all tend to use confirmation bias in how we walk through life. For important decisions, it's most important to be thorough and to raise the idea of alternatives and the possibility that your preconceived notions may be incorrect. The more you do that, the more you will be honing your decisions and improving your behaviors. The next time somebody gives you a puzzle and you're given multiple chances and options to explore the puzzle, and analyze it before drawing your conclusion. Take those opportunities. The more data that you have before drawing a final conclusion, the more precise and accurate you'll be. Thank you for listening to the Recovery Arc podcast. I'm Dr. Pat Phelan. If you're interested in learning more or working a weekly therapy program for yourself, sign up on our Recovery Arc site. You'll get 52 weeks of guided addiction content focusing on science, medications, therapy, peer support, and family recovery. Recovery Arc, blending science with strategy.